Thank you, Jake. It's good for us to be reminded the qualities of a righteous man and, and, and how the Lord blesses us. We're going to be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 24 today. We're going to be continuing in the life of David. And uh, like I said earlier, um, the, the, there's a challenge that people talk about where the challenge of preaching is to, to keep an eye on current events and also uh, and what, what people are talking about in the vernacular of the world and also at the same time uh, maintain true, like keep, keep your focus on uh, what does the Bible actually say. And, and uh, that's a challenge because if you try and preach on the newspaper, you're just going to find yourself like chasing that every week. But there are some times where it does come together. Um, and because uh, we're going to be talking about the life of David here and we're going to be caught, we're, as we're in this kind of second act of, uh, of David's life, David's reality is constantly that Saul, his former mentor in some ways, the king of Israel, wants to kill him and destroy him. That's, that's the reality of David's life. And this is one situation where, where David and Saul are going to have a, a conflict together. And, and, and how does David deal with the oppression that he is feeling uh, from, the person, uh, from, from the government above him? And, and, and this is a an interesting question because I did come up on a moral question this week that just popped up over and over again um, that sort of relates to what we're talking about today. And that moral question was, should we punch Nazis? Um, now, I'm not going to in any way... Uh, now, there's an obvious answer to this question, which is that like, um, this isn't about Nazism. Like, Nazism is, is abhorrent to Christianity. If you need to be convinced of that, read the New Testament. I, I, like, it's just... Yeah. It's, but... There is a moral question of like, is it a valuable thing? Is this is the way that we ought to deal with such people to punch them in the face? And and this became a conversation that a lot of people were having. And and I don't want to in any way deny the satisfaction of punching someone in the face. I have, in my younger days, I may have perhaps punched someone in the face, um, and uh, and that was an enjoyable thing to do. In all honesty, even getting punched in the face is kind of fun. I mean, I haven't done it in like 20 years, but. But one, once somebody punches you and then you're like, oh, I'm still standing, then you kind of feel like you're invincible. So, but this is a, an interesting question. How ought we to deal with people that are damaging others? How ought we to deal with such people? And is there any room for us to use violence as a, a methodology uh, of, of protecting others in our world? And this is and, 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 and this, this became a fascinating question for me because I don't really have a good answer. And I'm going to warn you, by the time we get to the end of this, I'm not going to have a satisfying answer for you. But I am going to hopefully walk us through a process that enables us to make this decision a little bit easier. Because this is how David dealt with some of his issues. So Saul returned from following the Philistines. So this is the very next thing. David is in the wilderness. He's got uh, about 400 men, 600 men now with him. He is, uh, they're still outlaws on the run. And, uh, and Saul, the king, hears that he was uh, returned from following the Philistines, and he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then, David, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. So, uh, so Saul is trying to kill David. He hears where he is. He, ga- he musters an army of the 3,000 3, best men from all over Israel, and he goes on a, a manhunt. And, and the reason why he's doing this, just to remind us all what Saul's heart was, the big issue where Saul starts to turn against David is here in 1 Samuel 18. That, that, that David, the giant killer, was, was working for Saul as a military leader, 
and, and they go and they have a big victory and they come back and the women sang to one another as they celebrated in the celebration of this wonderful battle. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands and Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said they have ascribed to David ten thousands and they have, to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that point on. So this entire problem that Saul and David have is rooted in Saul's vanity. That Saul can't take the fact that David is being given high, that people like David seemingly more than they like him. And let's be honest, both of these numbers are exaggerations, okay? David did not kill tens of thousands at once. Saul did not kill thousands. Both of these numbers are exaggerations, but because David's exaggeration was bigger than Saul's exaggeration, Saul was angry and uprooted the entire kingdom because of that. The smallness of Saul, Saul's insecurity, becomes dangerous to the entire kingdom because he doesn't have the ability to, to have someone strong in his kingdom. That's where it begins, and because of that, he does this. He gathers 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, we should all know that these 3,000 men from all over Israel had better things to do with their time than to chase David. There was things that they could have been doing that would have been beneficial. They are leaving their own communities, which are now left vulnerable to the attacks of the Philistines, which are happening all the time, as we, as we know from reading. And now all of a sudden, Saul has them chasing down a personal vendetta against David and his men. They have better things to be doing than follow, chasing David around the wilderness. And so Saul's vanity and vindictiveness have become dangerous for him and for the entire kingdom. So how does this respond? So they continue, and Saul, he, Saul came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do good do to him as it, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, I'm going to read this again because none of you laughed. And it's okay to, this is a ridiculous situation. If you saw this situation in a movie, you would be laughing because you need to imagine this. David and his 400 men are hiding in, on the inside of the cave from Saul and his approaching army. As they hide inside the cave, the leader of that army wa walks into the front of the cave to use the washroom, okay? This is a, you can laugh at this. It's a funny scene. So, in the midst of this, ridiculous, uh, of this ridiculous situation, all of David's men turned to him and like, okay, well, you get, go take care of him. Like, this is, the, this is the opportunity that you've been looking for. Like, and, and then we see how David responds. Oh. Oh, yeah. So David, so David arose, and, and, he, and he stealthily cut off a corner of, of Saul's robe. So that's what he does. And even that... It's a problem. So afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And he came to the sheep. Okay, so uh, back. So we need to confront how David dealt with this situation as opposed to his men 
dealt with it because his men had a very obvious situation. We're being chased by this guy. He wants to murder all of us. Now you have an opportunity. Murder him. This is the way that the world works. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. He's delivered. Problem solved. But David does not see this this way. Why doesn't he see that? Why and why doesn't David see this the same way that his men see it? Because they see like we have a problem. God has offered you up the opportunity to solve that problem. Go and solve it. But Dave doesn't see it that way, because his heart struck his heart struck him. Because David's mind told him, and David's heart told him that he was not going to attack the Lord's anointed. And I think that David saw this situation as ridiculous as it was, and it was beneath both of them. And that the story would be, that would be told over the transfer of power in this kingdom would not be a story that would inspire people. How did your king become king? Well, our old king was using the bathroom, and then our new king stabbed him in the back. It's not an inspiring story to tell of government transition. But I think David also deeply, deeply trusted the Lord. And he knew that if God wanted to take Saul, that God could take Saul. When God destroyed Pharaoh, he did so using the weapon of the Red Sea. When God had people who were opposing him in the wilderness as the Israelites were following there, when he wanted to have his justice done, he had the ground open up and swallow people. He had snakes come out and bite people. He had disease afflict people. Saul was not alive because God was unable to take care of that problem. Saul was alive because God was keeping him alive. And if, if Saul dead was what the Lord wanted, and merely Saul dead, then the Lord could have done that. But, God, but David's trust in the Lord was greater than his own desire for vengeance, and his trust in the Lord was greater than his own desire for power. David arose after this, and he does have a confrontation with the Saul. With Saul. David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, the, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out, put out my hand against my lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he continues, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and you did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, David continues. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be, my, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. This is amazing. That David feels the ability and he feels free to show kindness for, for evil, to repay kindness for evil. He feels he has the freedom to refrain from vengeance because he trusts that the Lord is greater. The God that David knows is a God of justice. The God that David knows is a, is a God that does not allow evil to reign forever. And the God that David is in a relationship know, uh, with, uh, he knows that that God will bring 
all vindication and all vengeance. So his trust is in the Lord, and his trust in the Lord is so great that he doesn't feel the need to prove himself right. His trust in the Lord is so great that he doesn't feel the need to destroy Saul. He doesn't need to impress. There's no need of approval and acceptance because the God that he worships is stronger. Now, we can all look at this and say how amazing David is. And there's a tendency that we have as we look at these stories in the life of David to see David as some sort of comic book superhero, that what he did was amazing. And we cannot possibly approach those levels of, of, of authenticity with the Lord, of, of, of leadership, of, of connection, of trust. But at the same time, this is what we've been called to. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, this is interesting that Paul is saying this to the church in Rome. The church in Rome had already been persecuted. They were made up of, of, of immigrant Jews to Rome. They were made up of people who had left behind the religion that they grew up with to take on a new one. They were outsiders, and they were often people that were persecuted and kicked out of Rome. And, and Paul says to these people, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As immigrants in an often unwelcome land who are subject to persecution and banishment, he says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love this line. Do give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. God deeply knows our hearts. We're not going to give them something to drink because we want to. We're not going to give them something to, to eat because we want to. But God is saying, if you take control of this thing, if you return good for evil, you take the power back. And you say to those oppressors over you that 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 they are not in control, that you have the ability to take this in your own hands and say, no, 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 I don't, I don't play your game. This is the game that I play. And, and those who are in power and oppress hate that. This is not an invitation to be walked on. This is not an, an invitation to be crushed and forever play the victim, but this is an invitation to remove the power from the attacker and the oppressor and to place it back in your own hands. G oh, uh... Oh, shoot. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, I don't know where that slide went, but sorry. But it's in Matthew chapter 5. He talks, Jesus talks specifically about re retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, sorry, I'm just finding Matthew 5. I'm totally losing the sword drill. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is a fascinating thing. Jesus says, if someone hits you on one cheek, give them the other cheek as well. What does that demonstrate? What does that do? It demonstrates the strength of character of the person standing. Because rather than running, rather than fighting, which are two options that would be acceptable in that situation, they choose to stand and say, I can take another one. Is that all you got? Give me another one. Again, if someone, Jesus turns up the comedy and, and, the, and the, 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 the silliness that we impose on our, uh, on our oppressors. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So if someone wants to, to take the clothes off your back, don't just give them one thing so that you can walk away sort of making it look okay. Give them everything. Sure, you want that? You can have my pants too. Do you want my socks? Do you want my shoes? Give them everything. Because the thief who is taking from you by legal means now all of a sudden has to deal with this, with, this, with this crazy person who is making a scene for everyone. You can't take something from me. I'm giving it to you. And he turns it up with even more political oppression. If, everyone, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. There was a, a, a rule in the Roman Empire that a Roman soldier could grab anyone off the street and force them to carry their gear for one mile, but only one mile. You were not allowed to let anyone, you, you were not allowed to force anyone to carry your gear for two miles. The Romans were, were tough, or were, were, were kind of mean, but they weren't ridiculously mean. So you could grab someone and just say, carry this, but they could only go a mile. But Jesus is saying, as you carry, that ro- as you carry your oppressor's gear for a mile, don't put it down. Rather, turn to him and say, I'm going to go another mile. So now your oppressor has to follow you for another mile because he has someone over him, a centurion who's going to be looking and going like, did you make that guy carry your gear two miles? No, 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 he volunteered for the second mile. Really, he volunteered for the second mile? So you've got it now, all of a sudden, rather than having a Roman soldier saying, here, carry my stuff, you have a Roman soldier for that entire second mile following you going, please put my gear down, please put my gear down, please put my gear down. And now he has to punch you or, 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 or commit some sort of extra act of violence against you because you have taken the power back in this situation. This is not an invitation to be walked on. It's a chance to remove the power from the attacker and place it in the hands of the oppressed. We see David do this. Hopefully we do. Oh, there we go. Do we get to there? So we see how David does this, and we see Saul's response to David after David does this. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is it your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day have you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand." Saul finds himself shamed, and in his authority, he recognizes in David, that David has a moral authority that his own situation lacks, that, that Saul's authority is, is a mirage, that Saul's power is a mirage, because 
David has the moral authority that comes with the Lord behind him. Which brings us back to our first question. The moral question that we started with, should we punch Nazis? And the answer is, I don't know. Because we know from David's life that David was not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. And we just talked about last week how David used violence to protect the people of Kilah from the Philistines, that God gave them a great victory, that there was a time when David had to assert his own power over other people and say, no, this stops here. Okay? You are no longer allowed to, to oppress or to commit violence against people, and we will put our, our own lives in the line to protect other people. But I do think that in the life of David, there was a difference between the use of violence to protect others and the use of violence to assert ourselves. There's a difference between the use of violence where you're placing yourself in the line between, uh, between, between something that is a destructive force that is going to do damage to someone that is unable uh, to protect themselves and, and a difference between being an attacking force trying to push something down. And I don't, and I don't know the right answer to this question all the time. Because there are a lot of voices in this world that are saying things that are contrary to what God has called us to. And there are voices in this world that are saying that not every human being is created in the image of God. There are voices in this world that are saying that they're, that, 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 uh, that, that are saying that, 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 that individual people of individual ethnicity uh, are, are, should be primary over other people, and that is so contrary to the message of Christianity that, that that should infuriate us. We should be angry. Every human being, regardless of their ethnicity, country, uh, culture, country of origin, language, everyone is imbued with the image of God. Every human being has been created in God's image, and all of us are united, especially those of us who are Christians, all of us are united more by the Jesus who is within us than the other things that the world would choose to use to divide us. But as, in the same time, as much as there are things that are horrendous, the call is on us, as it says in Romans 12, to live it as much as it is in our control to live it at peace with everyone. So there are going to be times... And there may be times coming where we need to push, put ourselves in, 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 in the line, uh, we need to put ourselves in the, in the, in the firing line between, between oppressors and those who would like to inflict their damage on others. There are times when we're going to have to put skin in the game and stand up to Nazis or, or white supremacists or, or anyone who would diminish the humanity of other human beings. We're, there's going to be times, and, and possibly times coming soon, where we're going to have to put ourselves in the line of fire because we are standing up to protect. But I do think that there's a difference between attacking merely to, uh, to demonstrate our own rightness and attacking merely to, to affirm our own power over other people. That's when we step in and we play the oppressor's game with the oppressor's rules. This is an easy thing to do. I don't know if we should punch Nazis or not, because in all honesty, punching Nazis or acts of violence has been the only thing that's ever stopped them in the past. But I think when we do, if we do so, when, <laughs> when and if we do so, we need to make sure that we're doing it not for our own satisfaction, but for very clear reasons of protection and care for other people. Let's pray. God.
We live in a complex and complicated world. And we get difficult moral questions for which there are no clear and even answers. But we trust that in the midst of a world that is that is appears to be going insane, in the midst of a world where there is oppression happening, in the midst of people attacking us, that we can trust you. That we can say with encouragement that vengeance is yours because you said so. That we can refrain from attacking merely for our own satisfaction, but that we can use the strength that you've given us to protect others, to protect ourselves, to and, and, well, not to protect ourselves, but to trust that you are protecting us. And that as we step in to do your will, and as much as it is possible to live in peace with everyone, we ask that you would give us the strength to do that. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.